All right. Uh, well, if you have your Bibles, open to Philippians chapter 2. That's where we're going to be this morning. Philippians 2. And as you guys are turning there, uh, let me just say uh, on this last home game weekend of the year as A&M dismantled Western Carolina, uh, was I the only one that had no idea what a catamount was? <laughs> it took me like a quarter. I finally had to phone a friend to figure out what in the world was going on. But the fury of a pack of catamounts cannot be underestimated, at least for a first half, right? Um, but we are excited to have you guys here. We're going to be Philippians 2 this morning. And as you're kind of still turning there, I'll, I'll tell you guys, there are a few rules of life that are timeless that you can never underestimate. And one of those is this, that when there's a guy who likes a girl and he finds himself in a social situation, he will do whatever it takes to not appear absolutely clueless. Uh, one of those moments occurred for me uh, the spring break of my senior year. We were on a road trip with all of our best friends, and I I was dating Marcy at the time, and she was on this road trip with us, and along the way to the Grand Canyon, something happened, and all of a sudden, the car that I was driving that had Marcy and a few friends in it, all of a sudden, every single light on the dashboard just lit up, like a Christmas tree, all right? And all of a sudden, the power of the engine completely shut down, power steering shut down, and took all I had just to get it off the side of the road, and so we come to the side of the road with a car that is now halted and have absolutely no idea what has gone wrong. And so we're, we are pulling off the side of the road, and as is normal, Marcy and others are in the car and say, hey, what is going on? And so I, to them, and to the buddy that's shotgun said, oh, we'll find out, no worries at all. And so stop the car, we get out, and I do what most normal guys do, pop the hood, right? I don't know that really knows what that's going to happen or how that's going to help, but we pop the hood, and so we go, now looking at the engine, all the innards of a car and an automobile, and you have to realize I'm not an auto guy, I have no idea anything about cars, and so we get now looking at the hood, or underneath the hood with the hood popped where the girls cannot see us from inside the car, uh, looking out as we're on the outside of the car, and I say to my buddy, hey man, do you have any idea what's happened? He's like, no, I have no idea. <laughs> he goes, how about you? I was like, no idea. But at least they cannot see us right now and know that we're completely confused, all right? So we just buy some time looking at the inner parts of an automobile that we have no idea what they do. I still don't know what a carburetor does, for Pete's sakes. I don't know anything about automobiles, all right? And so we're there realizing there's a serious problem, realizing we don't want the ladies to know that we have no clue. And so we buy a little time. We kind of reach in and act like we're doing a few things, okay? So they could see our hands kind of like grabbing things, right? And then finally we're like, we walk back into the car and say, hey, ask one of the ladies, hey, could we borrow your cell phone? We need to call the dealership, all right? to confirm an issue, which really meant we're going to call one of our parents <laughs> and ask what's happened. And so we call one of our parents and realize the car that we were in had like a kill switch and somehow the kill switch got triggered, all right? And so it killed all power, it killed the engine, it killed the power steering. And so uh, we flipped the kill switch back on, the car comes back on, and we walk back in the car as if we owned the place and we knew exactly what we were doing. Girls had no clue, okay? So why do I tell you guys that story? What does that have to do at all with what we're going to look at this morning? It's this, that I, I think there are a lot of times as we think about the spiritual life, that there are a lot of times as to actually how it works, that if we're absolutely honest, we're not sure. There's a mystery that surrounds the spiritual life at times, and we talk a lot, and we spend a lot of time, even this fall so far, talking about how do we get into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that often seems basic and clear. The last week you guys got to hear about the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus has died, that he was buried, that he was resurrected, and that his death and his resurrection provides us confidence that if we believe in him, if we have faith in what he's done on our behalf, that we can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's fantastic. That's the starting spot. That's where this whole thing begins. But 
How does it get moving thereafter? How does this thing actually, once we've started and gotten into a relationship with Christ, how does it actually take into motion and start moving? Well, that's what Philippians 2 is going to be all about this morning. And for you automobile people, or for you, if you're like me, you're clueless, I'll keep it real simple. Uh, but we're going to look at two things, so to speak, about the spiritual life this morning. One is the engine of the spiritual life, and the second is the dashboard. And that's all that I'll have automobile-wise for you the rest of the morning, all right? But the engine and the dashboard. How does the spiritual life actually get put into motion? And then what are the warning lights on the dashboard of our spiritual life, so to speak, that highlight for us if there's a problem? The engine, it has it gets moving, and then the, the dashboard that shows us warning lights. And so if you're here this morning and you go, you know, I'm at the end of a semester, and if I'm honest with myself, even as we're singing, I, I just don't really find my heart <laughs> responding. There's just something that's not engaging. Or if you're honest and you're, you've been dealing with some sin struggles that you go, I know what God's called me to do, but I just can't seem to figure out how to do that. And I keep losing week after week to the same issues and the same struggles. Well, this morning's for you. I think no matter where you find yourself this morning, as we end up in a semester, a lot of us feel fatigued, a lot of us feel frustrated. For some of us, if we're honest, there's been failures in our spiritual life. And Philippians chapter 2, I think we'll speak to that in a way that maybe we haven't seen the rest of the semester so far. Philippians 2 is not going to be about how to get into a relationship with Christ, but it's going to be how does that relationship with Christ get put into motion. That's where we're going to go this morning, Philippians chapter 2. And so as you jump into Philippians 2, the first thing we're going to see really is the engine of this process known as sanctification. I'm going to throw out a word here, uh, a few theological words for you to kind of help identify where we've been, where we're going. There's three stages to salvation. Salvation is one of these buzzwords that we love to use. I'm going to throw a few more buzzwords out just to kind of help direct for you where we're going. But justification is a word that hopefully we've looked at already a little bit last week. Is that process by which, or is that moment in time that someone trusts in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins and they're justified? God declares them righteous on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for them. That's a moment in time on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done by the faith that we've entered into that relationship. That's justification. It's the declaration of God that we're righteous. Because of the shed blood of Christ that has cleansed us, that has made us righteous, that has allowed us to enter into a relationship and into the presence of God. What sanctification is, is the second stage of salvation. Justification is where it begins. Sanctification is not a moment, but it is a process that's ongoing that launches off from that moment of justification. The moment that God declared us righteous because of the shed blood of Christ, it launched off a process known as sanctification in which God is now actually trying to make us righteous. He's actually transforming us to be more and more in the image of Jesus Christ. That's the process of sanctification. That's the purpose of the spiritual life. That now that you've gotten heaven, now that you've gotten a relationship with Jesus Christ, the question is, what do you do with it? How do you actually, how does this actually matter? And that's where Paul's going to take us in Philippians 2 this morning, beginning in verse 12. Notice what he says. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation. Some command here in chapter 2, verse 12, to work out your salvation. Let me give one kind of quick moment of clarification here because prepositions, little three-letter words are absolutely important here. It does not say work for your salvation. It says work out your salvation. And that three-letter word difference makes all the difference theologically. What Paul is saying here is not that you have to work to get salvation. Remember, we talked about in terms of the process of justification, that's an absolutely free gift. It's an absolutely free gift. You do not have to work for it because Christ has worked for it already. He's paid the cost for it already. So what is Paul saying here? 
not to work for your salvation, but to work it out or literally to put it into motion, to exercise your salvation, to actually live it out and embody it. It's to put it into motion. That's really the idea here in Philippians 2 verse 12. But the question is, how does that happen? How does the process of obedience, how does the putting of our salvation into motion actually happen? Notice verse 12 again. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We read this verse two weeks ago, speaking about election and predestination. This is an absolutely imperative verse as it looks at the process of sanctification. And what Paul is saying is this, that it is our responsibility to exercise our faith, to put our salvation into motion. But as we do that, as we cooperate with it, really what we find is that God is at work making that possible. That God is at work, in a sense, the engine of the spiritual life process. And what we find is that he's at work, and his work has two different things involved with it. But before I want, as he says, it's two different things. Notice verse 13, for God is at work in you two different ways, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work. That the result of the work of God in our lives in the process of sanctification is that it causes us to have the will and the work to do it. Let me kind of rephrase that or maybe put that a little bit more simply. It's this. The will is the idea of desire and the idea of work there is the idea of ability. What, what Paul is saying for us as we have to put our salvation, our, our faith into motion and exercise it is this. That he calls us to a command, but that command before he ever calls us to it is something that he's enabled and provided us the resources to do. And the resources specifically that he's given us to work out our salvation are two things. One, it's a new set of desires And the second is, is a new set of abilities. That word there, the will, is the word for desire. It's a set of affections that God has given us, a set of affections, a new set of desires so that we want to obey, that we actually desire and we delight in obeying. And the second is this, the work, the ability. He's given us a new set of abilities to actually do this. And this is why it's the engine. It's what drives this whole thing. And what Paul is saying here comes from the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, which we get the promise of the new covenant. Notice what the prophet Ezekiel says way, way long ago. He's looking forward to a day that's going to come, and the prophet Ezekiel says this, Moreover, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. What's fascinating about the prophet Ezekiel as he's speaking to the nation of Israel at the time is this, that he's speaking to a people who have utterly failed. They have utterly failed God. That in the midst of the commands that God had given the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, they had completely botched it. They had epically failed that test. And so as Ezekiel speaks to the nation, they are currently, in a sense, in timeout. They are being disciplined. They've been removed from the promises of God, and they are, in a sense, in a timeout staring in the corner because they failed And instead of the prophet Ezekiel coming to them and yelling at them more when they feel like they fail, like a dog who gets his nose rubbed into something that he made an accident in, all right? Prophet Ezekiel says, here's what God's going to do. That in the midst of a day that's going to come, God is going to move and he's going to act in such a way so that the very reason that you can't obey and you don't want to obey, he's going to fix that one day. The nation of Israel won't get to experience that, but this is the very thing that gets covenanted and inaugurated with Jesus Christ and his blood on a cross. That his blood unseals this covenant so that the church enters into it, and what the church gets to experience is something that the nation of Israel never did. That if you know Jesus Christ this morning, if you've been justified, if you've entered into a relationship with Jesus Christ, then this whole spiritual life is not about just trying your best. It's not about rolling your sleeves up, 
and just trying to defeat sin and just gritting your teeth and hating it, but doing what you can to do it because you know God's called you to it. That's Old Testament spiritual life. New Testament spiritual life is profoundly different. And it's in this, that God has given us a new set of desires and a new set of abilities. Let me illustrate this for you. If you've been around for a while, you've probably heard a few food analogies from me. And let's be perfectly honest, I, I kind of eat like a four-year-old, okay? I don't like vegetables. That's kind of my thing, okay? Uh, and now in our family stage of life, we're kind of entering the stage where our kids are very aware. And so we're forcing them to eat vegetables, but they haven't yet really communicated it. But if they look just one foot over to my plate, there wouldn't be any vegetables, which creates a clear double standard, right? That we're forcing our kids to eat something that daddy's not eating, but they haven't noticed it, so I'm kind of still flying free for I don't know how much longer. If any of you mention it to them, I will be very upset, okay? But I'm not having to eat vegetables. I don't like vegetables, all right? I just don't have a taste for vegetables. I realize that carrots, broccoli, and asparagus, they're like the unholy trinity of vegetables. I realize that they're good for you, but I don't like them, okay? They make me want to gag, all right? It's not personal. It's personal for me, all right? But I just don't like them, all right? Now, what would be magnificent is if one day I could arise tomorrow morning, I could wake and I could salter out of bed, grab my coffee, and then all of a sudden have a new set of taste buds for broccoli, corn, and asparagus, all things that I think are disgusting, okay? That would be amazing. All right, I'm kind of overdoing that, all right? But that would be amazing, all right? If I could wake up and have a whole new set of desires and a whole new set of taste buds that I would internally delight in what is obviously good for you. That hasn't happened yet. I don't think it's going to happen, all right? But this is exactly what Paul is saying has happened for you and I if we know Jesus Christ. That that which is good, that which God has called us to, what God is doing for those of us who know Jesus Christ, who have a relationship with him, is that he's working internally so that you and I have a new set of desires and a new set of affections slowly but surely so that we actually desire to obey. That we delight in obeying that we take joy in obedience, that it becomes the natural inclination of our heart slowly but surely. Is that immediate? No. Does it grow over time? Yes. And it's not just that he gives us a new set of of desires, but he also gives us a new set of abilities because in Ezekiel as well, it's not just that he gives us a new heart that goes from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh, a heart that is now soft and responsive and moves in the direction of God's heart, but he also gives us his spirit. And what does his spirit cause or what does his spirit make happen? He says, I will put my spirit within you and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. That as you look at the prophet Ezekiel as he's speaking to a people who have disobeyed and they failed, What he's saying is a day is going to come when God will make it the internal heartbeat of a person to want to obey and God will give that person the ability to actually obey as well. In terms of New Testament spiritual life, what the Apostle Paul is saying about you and I, if we know Jesus Christ, is is that God always, before he provides us responsibilities, he always provides us resources now. That before he ever exhorts us to do something, he equips us for that now. That resources always precede responsibility. And because of that, the spiritual life should look profoundly different than it did in the Old Testament. Because he's given us a new set of heartbeats, and he's given us a new set of abilities so that we can actually obey and respond. A few years ago, uh, a story was told of a, of, of a friend who had to put together a giant fort for his kids, and he invited a student over. I don't think it was a work project because this would be wrong, but he invited a student over, and they were going to put together this giant fort, but he couldn't actually find a power screwdriver, okay? So they just had manual ones, all right? So for literally an entire Saturday, 
they manually put nut after nut, bolt after bolt, and built this thing. All right. By the end of the day, <laughs> their hands were completely bruised, battered, and there was soreness for weeks on end. Okay, it was cruel and unusual punishment. All right. When there was a screwdriver just sitting in the garage, if only it could be found, that was powered. All right, it would make everything effortless. All right, that fort got built. But that relationship probably had a few issues on the backside of it, right? And their hands were completely destroyed for weeks on end. Because they had a call, but they had a set of resources that they could have just leaned upon, it would have been way better instead of manual effort. See, there's two ways to respond to the spiritual life now for you and I if we know Jesus Christ. The first is this. You can respond to the call of God in your own effort, or you can respond to the call and the commands of God by the Spirit's effort and the Spirit's ability. One is self-empowered, one is spirit-empowered. One is independence upon ourselves and our own abilities, and one is independence upon the spirit. How do you know which way you're going? How do you know if you're leaning on your own resources, or how do you know if you're leaning on the resources of the spirit of God? Here's three telltale signs. One, frustration. Two, fatigue. And three, failure. As you land at this point in the fall semester, it's likely that you're starting to kind of move into basic habits that you're used to and maybe having a tendency to rely on self as you try to walk with God. As you think about walking with God, as you think about even jumping in and responding to what God might be calling you to, if you find in your internal compass, if you will, a sense of frustration, a sense of just fatigue that you just want to break, maybe you're looking at your spiritual life and you see a lot of failure, the reality is you've probably begun to lean on your own resources and not the Spirit. Because when we rely upon the Spirit and we find in our, in our own selves a desire to obey as well, all of a sudden that spiritual life looks different and is experienced different. But fatigue, failure, and frustration are usually telltale signs that we've leaned upon our own resources and we're manually just trying to build a spiritual fort, if you will. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. It's frustrating. And it doesn't have to be that way. That's Old Testament spiritual life. That's not New Testament spiritual life. And the next thing that Paul is going to do is give us a couple different warning signs on the dashboard that help us highlight when we've moved from the engine and begun to rely upon ourselves. The dashboard, if you will, here's some warning lights. And notice what he does after this incredibly deep theological two verses, verses 12 and 13. Notice what he does in verse 14. He goes from this incredible idea of new covenant blessing and privileges of how God has rewired the entire spiritual life. And then notice what he says in verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Hmm. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't know if you're kind of like me. I, I just read through going, I'm getting a ton out of verses 12 and 13, and now we're not supposed to grumble. <laughs> that just feels like a, like a real letdown, or like, that's all you got for me, Paul? Like, what, what's going on here? I think what Paul is doing is he's going to give us in verses 14 and really all the way into verse 18 a series of warning lights that are incredibly practical that help highlight for you whether you are depending upon the Spirit or whether you're depending upon yourself. And the first is what comes in verse 14 when it says, do all things without grumbling or disputing. Why does he go here? What has been the entire crux of chapter two of the book of Philippians? It's all been about unity. It's been about handling different conflicts. And what Paul is saying here to his people is this, that for you, as you look at your spiritual life, one of the key concepts, one of the key things to look for is if you have a tendency to whine and complain and grumble, something is off. Something's off. And it's not just this verbal tendency to whine or complain and miss what God's provided, but also in that, in chapter 2, that it's a, a chapter all about unity of the body, that that tendency always leads to a disunity of the body of Christ and a disunity of relationships. 
And so what Paul is trying to highlight for this people is this, that as you think about the spiritual life, grumbling, complaining, handling conflicts is an absolutely huge litmus test. It's an absolutely huge warning light as to where you are. You guys are three months into a semester and it's probably likely as you think about your roommates, (laughs) you're pretty much done with their cycles of failure in your life, right? If they don't clean the dishes one more time, I'm going to destroy them, right? That's what you're thinking, right? There are times where you begin to just, instead of destroying them, because you know that's not Christian, I'll just passive aggressively complain and whine about their issues, right? Uh, Maybe in front of them, maybe behind their back. And what Paul is going to say is, that is a clear telltale sign that you're not walking by the Spirit. You're not seeing life as he would call us to see it. You're not moving in relationships to build unity. Instead, you're causing disunity, Instead of unity, you're causing division. Instead of thinking about others, you're thinking about yourself. And so Paul says in verse 14, after this incredible theological treatise, he says in verse 14, stop grumbling. (laughs) He puts the cookies on the bottom shelf and he goes, if you want to know how you know whether you're walking by your own spirit or by the spirit of God, here's one sign. Are you grumbling and are you whining? For you guys, I would say it's a great thing to pull back and process on this week. In the midst of the cycles that you've had as roommates, in the midst of relationships with family, in the midst of professors and authorities, how do you speak about them? Whether it's to them or whether it's behind their back. Do you grumble? Do you whine? Do you complain about circumstances instead of moving towards them and figuring out how to build unity, how to build trust, and how to respond differently? That's one of the clearest dashboard warning lights. But here's the second one. Notice verse 15. So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights in the world. The first dashboard warning light that pops on is the issue of disunity. And the second one is the issue of impurity. Now these are two critical issues that will highlight for you whether you are walking with the Spirit or whether you're walking by your in and of your own resources. One is disunity. What kind of impact are you having on the relationships around you? Maybe that's roommates, maybe that's family. And the second is this, it's the issue of impurity. For you and your generation, in terms of where you stand and our culture and the way that it's moving, this is an absolutely giant one. And you guys hear this all the time. And it's not just sexual impurity, but it's an idea of moral compromise. That in terms of what God's called you to, in terms of the resources that he's extended to you, often we are making choices in the relationships that we're part of, things that we're looking at online, ways that we're handling our money, ways that we're speaking of authorities, that we are compromising ourselves. And in that, we are losing the ability and the resources to walk with the Lord. And we're leaning on our own resources. And we're getting weakened by those things. Every single one of us has areas of our life that if, every single, if someone really saw what's happening when no one's looking, there would be a reason to confess. No one's perfect. Everyone has areas of their life that are hidden from people and we're making choices that we know are not right. And one of the challenges I want to extend to you guys this morning is this, that you would build your life in transparency to others. That those areas of your life that you've built walls around or that you've created a cloak of transparency, but it's really not truly transparency, people really can't see, those are areas that are absolutely dangerous, that you are prone and vulnerable to compromise. Are there people in your life that can actually ask you the hard questions? Are there people in your life that really know what's going on, the way that you're responding to the opposite sex, what you're looking at with your eyes, how you're handling your money, how you're handling authority, 
how you're handling the different convictions God's given you. Are there people that know those things and that are asking those questions that can make you uncomfortable? If you don't have it, that's the purpose of community and the kind of community that can really call us to righteousness, that can really challenge us to be transformed, to be the men and women that God's called us to be, to be made more and more in his image, to be made more and more into the image of his own righteousness as we're transformed and grown. Two clear dashboard warning lights, disunity and impurity. And for every single one of us, it's a great moment this afternoon to pull back and go, hey, where are those issues in my life? This whole walking into my own resources, walking by the Spirit feels at times very ambiguous and mystical, and I don't know how to get my hands around that. But then we get down to the way that we speak about others, the way that we respond in relationships, the way that we respond when no one's watching, and now all of a sudden we're in an area that's really tactile, tactile and really specific and practical, and all of a sudden we begin to look at our decisions, wrestling with are we walking as God's called us to, or are we compromising and walking contrary to what he's called us to, taking what's not ours, taking what's not ours and the timing that he's given it, trusting that we can find something better than what he's provided. That's the spiritual life. In the midst of relationships as a venue to be transformed, in the midst of authority and difficult circumstances as a venue to be transformed, even under pressure and under trial as a venue for our transformation and our growth so that we lead to unity and we lead to purity. Let me pray for us. Lord, I thank you that as we think about the spiritual life, Lord, I thank you in the midst of all the commands that you throw to us that often can feel overwhelming or feel like it just devolves into a morality of what we should or shouldn't do. Lord, I thank you that we see this morning that's not what the spiritual life is. It's not about doing and not doing the right things. It's not about uh, just trying to lead to external behavior modification, Lord, but I thank you that in the midst of the things that you've called us to, that you provided us the resources to walk with you in a way that we begin to delight in your law, that we begin to delight in your ways, that we begin to delight in the things of you, and that you've also provided us the ability through your spirit to actually obey and to actually walk with you and to fulfill that which you've called us to and to please you, our Savior and our Lord and our King. And that's our heartbeat, Lord, is to walk well with you and to honor you and to be made more and more your into your image, Lord. And I pray that you continue that work in us, Lord. Father, we ask for these things this morning through your Son and by your Spirit, we pray. Amen. All right, the rest of the morning is y'all's at tables. You guys jump into table discussion and uh, we'll wrap it up around uh, toward the end, all right? You guys have a great discussion.